ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The past year or so in Australia, there's been a boom in semaglutide drugs being used off-label, in quotes, for weight loss. That's led to finger-pointing about shortages, concern about side effects, and outcry about how it might affect our attitude to weight issues generally. So it's a good time to ask what it's really like to be on Ozempic for weight loss and how we might sift through all this chatter to discover its real impacts. I'd be very interested to hear from you too. If you or someone you know has used Ozempic for weight loss, what reactions have you experienced from other people, whether those are clinical professionals or just your friends and family? Claire Murphy is a journalist and host of Mamma Mia's new podcast, The Quickie. And Claire's been covering the semaglutide issue for the site and has spoken openly about her own experience on Ozempic too. Claire, welcome. Hi, good morning, Hilary. How did you come to be on this drug? What led you to that point? Well, I have been overweight for probably the last couple of decades. I had a baby in there at one point and started to get really terrified of jumping on a set of scales, knowing that it had kind of crept up and crept up and crept up. I also have a knee injury that I did as a teenager that had been getting progressively worse. So I was seeing a GP and many GPs had told me up to this point that the way to get better with my knee joint was to lose weight. And then they kind of sent me on my merry way to figure that out on my own. And I did try diet and exercise and I did lose some weight and then I put that on and then some. Uh, I have been struggling for quite a long time with it. And I saw another GP and I said, look, my knee joint is getting worse. And again, I was told losing weight would be a solution. And I think I might have had a bit of a breakdown in the GP surgery because I was like, I know that that is a way to help me. I understand this. Logically, it all makes sense. I know that there are ways uh, that I can try and achieve that, but I've tried and I've failed. And the GP kind of saw me and the emotional state I was in and said, okay, well, how about we work together and try and figure out a way to make that work for you? And I was so very grateful. And we tried a few things, some other medications that had some pretty severe side effects for me. And then eventually he said, look, have you tried the injection? And I said, no, and that I hadn't really, I didn't really know enough about it yet. So I went away and I did a bit of research and I came back and I said, look, I think maybe that might be an option for me. It had shown to have quite a high success rate. It does have side effects, but we don't know if I'm going to experience those or not. And so my GP said to me, look, I can prescribe you this injection, but I can't prescribe it to you on the PBS because you can only prescribe it that way if you have type 2 diabetes. He said, however, the fact that your mum has type 2 diabetes, which she does, puts you at a much higher risk. And so he said to me, look, I'm going to prescribe this to you and then you just have to go and see if you can find it because by that stage it was already in short supply. So I did my best and went and tried a few chemists and managed to get my hands on it. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because as you say, there are different kinds of prescription. There's the PBS prescription and the private prescription. What kinds of different reactions have you encountered when you've tried to have this prescription, this completely legal prescription, filled at different pharmacies? Yeah, that's really interesting because there are some who are very understanding, who know that, I'm. I mean, I live in a pretty small regional town, so I'm quite familiar with my pharmacist and this particular pharmacist said to me, look, it is in short supply. You're just going to have to keep trying. But sometimes when I've travelled and had my prescription with me and I've approached other pharmacists, they have not been as understanding. And in fact, I've been laughed at by one who said something along the lines of, oh, I'm not going to feel that for you. 
And I was like, oh, I was really taken aback by it. And I was like, oh, why is that? And she goes, no, you don't get priority now. And I was like, oh, okay. And I kind of walked off with my tail between my legs. And it can be really mixed reactions. Sometimes you get a really supportive person who's like, I understand, but we can't give this to you right now. It's our policy that it only goes to those with a PBS prescription, which I completely understand. Um, but also it really sucks to be shamed for it too, because I'm trying not to end up with type 2 diabetes. Well, and the story you told is such a familiar one to a lot of people who've tried to lose weight with diet and exercise, Claire, isn't it? That, you know, you you try and do that and it, it gets put back on and there's a lot of scientific research to back up that idea that diets alone in particular don't work. How does it feel being on the semaglutide? How, how has it changed things for you? Well, Hilary, this drug did something to me that I wasn't expecting because in the research that I'd done, I knew that when people started taking it, that they did start to see weight loss but I didn't quite understand why that was happening. And after I started taking it, I finally got it because it is an appetite suppressant. But what it did for me is it turned off food noise. And I didn't even realize I had food noise until it was gone. And what I mean by food noise, and I can only kind of align that with any kind of addiction, that I might be eating my meal and there's a kind of panic in me that the food that's on my plate is not going to be enough. It's often start eating an open packet of something and almost go into a bit of a trance-like scenario and I'll eat it until it's all gone. Or when I'm eating, I'm still thinking about the next meal that I'm going to have and planning out the day of food. And it was a constant distraction. And this switched it off. And it felt finally like I had a bit of clear air to start making better choices for myself. I could eat better and not panic. I could eat and not feel that need or desire to go and snack and to try and, you know, seek out the next thing to put in my mouth. Like it just really switched that off and it made me make such better choices. It was so much easier to maintain. I understand that that might change if and when I do stop taking it. But through this period, it has been so helpful just to get my head in a space where I can finally tackle this. I mean, there have been also reports that it has unpleasant side effects, some of which are mm -hmm. about, you know, reducing your enjoyment of food and, and that that can have impacts on your social life. Tell us about that aspect for you and, and the cost, any downsides you've noticed. Yeah, look, it can cause some gastrointestinal issues and I have experienced some of those. Uh, you do start off on a lower dose and then you increase that dose. And when I got to the highest dose, I found that my my stomach just couldn't handle it. So I've come back down to the lower doses. Um, yes, it does change your relationship with food. So that whole idea of like going out for dinner feels a bit different because you're not kind of exploring the menu and like, what's the most delicious, amazing thing that I might have? You're mind kind of goes, you know, I'd be happy with just a bit of salad and I don't need to eat as much. And my husband, his love language is very much making food and sharing food. So for Aww. him and I, it's also been a bit of a struggle too, because we've kind of lost that connection. But at the same time, when I'm thinking about these things that I'm dealing with, which are the negative side of it, I have to balance that out with the fact that my health has improved significantly. Once I did lose some weight, I had a doctor finally take me seriously. I've had a full knee replacement since I've started taking this and I'm on the road to recovery. Um, you know, I'm I'm in a healthier weight range. I'm less of a risk of developing type 2 diabetes. It's just I have to weigh those things up that, yes, it's going to have some side effects, which aren't so great, but long-term health-wise, hopefully that makes up for it if 
even in the short term. Yep. I understand they wouldn't even give you an MRI on your knee until you'd lost no. some weight. That's no, they wouldn't. Annoying. It is, it's been incredibly frustrating. Part of the reason I had that sort of breakdown in the doctor's office, because I've just been told so many times, because I'm only in my 40s and the you know knee replacement age is generally in your sort of 60s, 70s and 80s, that I'm too young. So I've been fighting since my 30s to try and get one because I've had this injury since I was a teenager. So it's been getting worse and worse. And no one would send me for tests. They would literally just say, go lose some weight. One doctor said to me, for every five kilos you lose, it'll be 10% better with pain. And when I finally was taken seriously was when I lost 20 kilos. And they went, oh, okay, maybe weight isn't really the issue. Maybe there is something else we need to look for. And that's when I was sent off for an MRI. And a surgeon said to me, yours is one of the worst knee joints I've seen in a long time. Wow. So, yeah, it was incredibly frustrating. I just find that very useful background context for this discussion that we're having about attitudes around weight loss in clinical circles as well as among lay people. And, Claire, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your story with us today on Life Matters. Thanks for having me, Hilary. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Claire Murphy is a journalist, host of Mamma Mia's news podcast, The Quickie, and uh, she has real-life experience of this semaglutide debate as well as having covered it for the site. Tiffany Petrie is the director of the Obesity Collective. Tiffany, welcome to Life Matters. Hi, Hilary. Thank you for having me. Great to have you with us. And Catherine Backholer is a Professor of Global Public Health at Deakin University and Co-Director of the Global Centre for Preventative Health and Nutrition. Catherine, great to have you back on the show. Thanks, Hilary. Catherine, just quickly first up, we should clarify the difference between off-label prescribing and illegal prescribing, shouldn't we, if there even is such a thing. What are the rules right now for someone who wants to use semaglutide drugs in this country? Would you like me to answer that one, Hilary? Yes, please. Yeah, sure. So um, I think there's been a real confusion, and and actually media hasn't been very helpful in this, that off-label prescribing, which happens very normally with lots of other health conditions, is some kind of uh, illegal, terrible thing. Um, As I said, it happens normally in the health system. So someone getting access to semaglutide means that they have been prescribed that by their healthcare professional, by their doctor, and they have together deemed that to be the right step for that individual. so it's it's almost like people feel like someone's, you know, going into the back room of the pharmacy and stealing prescriptions. No, what's happening is that people have had health conditions their whole life, haven't been able to get assistance in the healthcare system. There's finally something that's a bit more evidence-based that's not quite as extreme as surgery that can help them. Um, and, and thank you to Claire for sharing her story. The more stories that we get out there about the complexity of this, the better. Um, and, and so this is not people stealing drugs away from others. This is not people just trying to get into a dress side. This is people just size. This is people trying to manage their weight and their health in an evidence-based way. And and a GP has prescribed this for them. We're speaking here with Tiffany Petrie, who's the director of the Obesity Collective. Uh, Tiffany, what kinds of reactions has the drug generated, though, since it loomed in public consciousness a year or so ago? Because there's a few different conversations circling around it, aren't there? Yes, I think it's been interesting and quite difficult at some times. Um, uh, There's downsides and upsides to the uh, public debate about this. So um, I'll I'll start with the upside is um, I think we're getting to a place where people have a much better understanding that obesity is a health condition, which has been pretty misunderstood and stigmatized up till now is this, this public narrative around oversimplifying it to being just a personal choice 
or a failure of willpower has been inaccurate and not backed by the evidence and the science. Um, and actually, there's lots of many complex drivers of obesity, and we're all very different. And there's even different kinds of obesity. So these new medicines making headlines has helped us be able to articulate and show um, in society that there's many biological drivers of obesity. And, and and again, as we talked about, some people who have tried the eat less and walk more their whole life and, and really struggled with that, they have now more answers as to why that's been so difficult. Um, so, so that's the plus side. Um, the downside is that people with obesity have been absolutely vilified around this global shortage, which is not their fault. And I think we've all been shocked by how much demand there's been in terms of health, but also in terms of image. Um, and we we weren't really ready for that. We knew that it would be something. But I think it, it really goes to show how much demand in the system there is for people that want evidence-based support and how we haven't been providing that till now. It's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of the reaction is targeted towards individuals. Why are you doing or not doing something? How well do you think generally in Australia we understand the idea that there are systems and environments at play here? Uh, I think uh, we're getting to, I'm hoping, that's the work that we do with the Obesity Collect, we're getting to a point of, of raising awareness of the many um, social, biological, historical, economic drivers, and Catherine can talk more to this, our environments really affect our health. And we have set people up to fail, and now we're blaming them for that. And of course, people have a role to play in their health and well-being, absolutely. But health is much more broad than just BMI and weight, um, and we really need to stop oversimplifying it to that. And I do think uh, the more nuanced conversations, the more we're sharing the many different stories and the evidence behind this, the more we are raising awareness and and the um, awareness of this, these medicines, along with many other things, is helping to shift the narrative in the debate, in my opinion. We're getting lots of really long text messages here with people keen to share their stories, obviously, you know, been on their minds. Pete in Ballarat in central Victoria, my story is not so different from Claire's. Family history of diabetes, weight issues, skeletal issues mean I can't use a gym. Body issues and low self-esteem means I struggle with swimming, for example, etc. I was shamed or laughed at by a number of of pharmacists. My GP only prescribed it as I'm at risk of diabetes and my options are very limited. Catherine Backholler, one strand of this conversation we're hearing is that people being told, you know, this is the easy way out. You should be using diet and exercise, lifestyle changes to lose weight and not this drug. Is that one of the conversations we should be having? What's your view on, on which way is best to lose weight? Well, I mean, I think we just, you know, heard from your callers, from Claire, that of course we need these kinds of weight loss treatments, but on their own, they're not a solution to the high levels of obesity that we're seeing. You know, these drugs are taken once someone's already experiencing obesity and doesn't get to those root causes, as Tiff mentioned, the environmental uh, aspects of weight gain right across the life course, right from before a child's even even born. Um, you know, we live in an environment where highly processed foods, high in salt, sugar, fat, they're readily available. They're often cheaper than healthier alternatives and they're promoted heavily so that people, including our children, prefer and then consume these foods. So I think, you know, we need to, we need these treatments. We need management of overweight and obesity, but we need to look at the environment and prevent obesity happening in the first place, you know, make healthy environments where we live, work, learn and play so that ultimately healthy choices are the easy choices and the preferred choices right from an early, early age, essentially. 
Those are long-term uh, projects, though, aren't they, Catherine? I mean, in the short term, some pundits are saying, you know, Ozempic could erase obesity, and then there's a whole discussion about what that means for people who are seen as being overweight. But what's your thought? Could it could it change the landscape in the sense that, I mean, it, it reduces our cravings for certain foods? Could, could it be a useful kind of population-wide thing if used widely enough? I mean, if enough people started using these drugs, we may see the food industry evolve and innovate in some ways. So, for example, coming up with smaller portion sizes, using more artificial sugars. Um, But the reality is we've got these huge multinational corporations that are ultimately driven by their shareholder returns and big profits. So just like big tobacco shifted from uh, uh, tobacco and cigarettes to e-cigarettes and vapes, just like the alcohol industry has shifted from uh, alcohol products to the no alcohol or the low alcohol products, we will continue to see the food industry shifting to maximise their profits. And ultimately, you know, this is where children, by the age of three, a child can recognise the major transnational food brands. And by the time they become teenagers, they're being bombarded by by about 20 different junk food ads every single day. So, you know, these these are these, it's a good thing that these uh, pharmaceutical products are out. We need these products, but we also need to prevent obesity, prevent weight gain from before a child is even born through pregnancy, through when they start walking right across their life course. And Catherine, how well are we doing at changing our systems and environments at the moment? Is there much progress that you're seeing in recent years? Well, I mean, there isn't much incentive at the moment. You know, as I said, the food industry is legally obliged to maximise profits and shareholder returns. They make their largest profits from marketing and selling prepackaged, shelf-stable, highly processed foods and drinks. And this is the incentive that they're working to. If we want to see change in the food environment, this is where we need our governments to step up. We need them to regulate the food industry, to protect our children from from the food marketing that they're seeing day in, day out, um, from stopping their sports heroes walking around with these food logos, these junk food uh, logos covered um, all over their sports uniforms, to make sure healthy foods are uh, are cheaper. You know, we know in Australia – um, at, if you're on a low income in Australia, a healthy diet is completely unaffordable. And this is where the government can step in and really make change so that our environments promote healthy choices. Catherine, the, the outlook for supply in, coming, in the coming year or so is still for shortages. If that were not the case, would you be happy to see the government look at broadening access for these semaglutide drugs, given that I guess potentially they could improve health outcomes for a substantial section of our community? Absolutely. You know, as I said, I think we need to think about this from treatment perspective, management perspective prevention perspective. We need all of these actions across all those different measures working in concert. So, you know, we absolutely need to, as uh, Claire mentioned, one of your call mentions, these are life-saving, these are, you know, life-changing treatments. So we need to have these accessible for people to be able to access to reduce their risk of diabetes, heart disease, cancer, uh, but we need to do that alongside these other preventive measures as well. Tiffany, what's your thought on how we can change the kinds of conversations we're having around these, these drugs and the reactions that people are experiencing? Yeah, a great question. I think just to also add to the point before, um, it, 
in the conversations I've had with the, you know, everyday people around the topic of obesity, people think that marketing and all these things that, that the food industry does um, to boost their sales doesn't affect them. But actually, it's really interesting. Marketing and the foods that we crave and, and our hormones are all affecting our brain. This is actually a matter of what's happening in our brain that's driving our, our hunger hormones. Um, and, and just to support what Catherine was saying is we need um, a range of things to happen to reduce the effects, the health impacts of obesity in society. And that includes healthier environments, a health system that is educated, resource supported, funded to be able to have nuanced, person-centered, evidence-based conversations with people based on their personal needs. And we need to reduce harmful stigma around this. Um, and for all of that to happen, we need to think about obesity differently. Um, and and so I think one of the, the issues we have is that the oversimplification of obesity, which has been the, the narrative up till now, you just need to choose to eat less and walk more, is harmful. It, um, weight stigma causes depression, anxiety, disordered eating, decreased self-esteem. I think some healthcare professionals um, would think, oh, if I'm a bit, you know, I challenge this person and I'm a bit, you know, difficult in the way I communicate with them, they might be more motivated when actually the research shows the opposite. If people feel judged or stigmatized or that their hard work hasn't been recognized, they're less likely to be able to stick to their their health goals, their um, trying to eat healthy, trying to move more and manage their stress. Because and they've said to me, why would I, why would I why would I try if I just keep keep failing. So that hasn't been helpful in many ways. And another issue is that if people feel judged, they're not going to go back to the health system. Um, you're meant to have a trusted relationship with your healthcare providers. And so then you might avoid really important things like checkups or infections or cancer screenings, and that is causing harm in the system. So the the way we have been framing obesity has been harmful and, and, and inaccurate. We need to change it. And I'm not surprised about some of those stories we've heard about healthcare professionals, because actually that hasn't been a priority in training in the medical profession of what are the many complex drivers of obesity, how our environments are driving it, how um, biology and hormones and epigenetics are affecting um, people's body and weight and how that each individual is different. Um, and and just this narrative of eat less and move more is all you got to do has really set us back. Yep, as, as we've been hearing so many different parts to this conversation. Thank you both so much for joining in with it uh, with us today on Life Matters. Really appreciate your time, Tiffany Petrie and Catherine Backholler. Thank you, Hilary. Thanks, Hilary. Tiffany Petrie is the director of the Obesity Collective. Catherine Backholler is a professor of global public health policy at Deakin University and co-director of the Global Centre for Preventive Health and Nutrition. And earlier on, you heard from Claire Murphy, who's the host of Mamma Mia's podcast, The Quickie, who has some personal experience with this. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 